Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Take this and share it. Hey, there I am. Um, talk about it. Put it on social media. Help us get the word out of what it is that the gospel says about something as big as race, because it really has a lot to say. And the more that we're willing to digest that and, like we said last week, deconstruct what we've been taught and what culture has taught us, I think the better off our world's going to be. So I'm going to pray and um, we'll get started. So pray with me. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you that we get more daylight finally. Thank you that our college students um, are coming back to campus today, hopefully refreshed and ready after 10 days of hopeful rest and relaxation. I pray that you would let them know they have a home here. Father, as we talk about something that's hard today, I ask that you would help me, that you would help us. Help us to get ourselves out of the way. Help us get the things we've been told, the things that we've been raised in. Help us to get all of that out of the way so we can hear your word of what it means to love people. Father, reveal to us our hearts. Reveal to me my own heart. As a boy from the north raised in the south, what this means for how we live and how we act and how we speak. <coughs> Father, grow a heart of goodness within me, within us. Grow a heart that is poised to see the world change, to fight through the hardship to be the difference. And Father, do it all for your glory and your glory alone. We love you, Jesus, for you died for us. And our names are engraven on your palms and on your hands because you care for us and you did it in our place. Help us to realize that today. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, I forgot my word. So, um, as you may expect... Studying about racism in the church and the gospel brought me to a very familiar place, Greek mythology. No, it's okay to laugh. That was, yeah, it was meant to be a little bit of a joke. Greek mythology. Um, and I was reading about all these guys, you know, like Ares, who I think, like when the Lord formed me, he probably had that in mind um, with his huge muscles and warrior-like ability. Um, no, but there were two goddesses who actually stuck out to me, who kind of, um, I don't know, kind of caught my heart a little bit. And I, I don't know their names because all I could find was descriptions, and I apologize about that. But um, th there's a, a myth where it talks about two very different goddesses who walked the earth and what came behind them. And the first was a goddess who actually was unseen on the earth. Humans didn't know she was there didn't see her walking back and forth, but what they did see, what was left behind her. Where she stepped, violets sprung up. When she passed by stagnant water, it became fresh and beautiful. Birds and animals would tweet and sing their songs as they flew around the pathway of what she walked. Burned trees that were dead sprouted life and leaves. And the other side was actually someone who is known to be another goddess as beautiful as Aphrodite, which I call her Lane. <laughs> she had a, a breath of perfume. When she, when she would breathe and speak, sweetness would fill the air. But the story goes that since birth, she had been fed poison consistently. And as her body was used to her, the poison, as she walked by things living, they would die. Birds would fall out of the air. And as she poisoned the atmosphere that she would walk, the reverse would happen where leaves and beautiful flowers would die. People would fall sick. If a bird to, flur, flew, flur, we're in the country, if a bird flew too close, it fell. And the flowers given to her would wither just by being in her presence. 
Now, although that's Greek, and you may be wondering, Sean, what in the world are we talking about Greek mythology for? Especially with all of our Furman students who are philosophy majors and would probably school me on all of that, not here this week. They'll listen and then tell me the right names, right, Luke? That's what they'll do, yeah. I think it's a picture of what we as a believers, as church, actually should and should not be. And the hard part as I was going through this is I think that um, we've probably in the last few years at least fallen on the wrong side of this equation as a church. See, <clears throat> our, our spiritual state and the physical presence around us either gives life or death. There, there is no in-between. When we walk in the room as believers, we, we should have some charisma about us, some peace, some hope that follows us if the Holy Spirit indwells within us. But I fear that a lot of the church today has not become that. Instead, we become a place of rigidity and fear. <clears throat> in fact, I'm going to ask a question, and then I'm going to wait a second, and I want you to answer it in your heart. Don't yell at me, please, because I can't see all of you, and that'll make me scared. No, but I want to ask a question, and I want you to consider the last few years to get your answer. What is the church, especially in America, known for today? When I was growing up, I was raised Catholic. And the joke consistently was priests and abuse. <clears throat> and as I got a little older, I learned that that actually wasn't a joke, that that was reality. And, and the, the world of Protestantism would point at the Catholic church and laugh and say, look at them unbelievable, the freedom that they don't have and how it leads to this. And yet, in the last few weeks, we've seen another major, the biggest denomination in America, be spoiled and destroyed with thousands of cases of sex abuse. Morality is justified with the gospel. Instead of the gospel actually preaching and teaching what our culture should be, we've decided what our concepts are about how people should live and who they are and applied them and taken scripture and said, no, this is how it supports it. Instead of saying, what does the gospel first say about how we should be as people? And I think part of that is because we have been fed poison since birth. We've justified morality with the gospel instead of allowing the gospel to teach us and to lead us into how we should live and who we should love. <clears throat> but church, we're called to be more. And as we talk about this very hard thing called racism today, I, I hope that you'll stay with me because I do want to call a bunch of people to be more. Because <clears throat> that's hard. And, and I want you to know I've struggled with this, this study this week. It has wrecked me. I was, I'm going to tell a story. I wasn't sure if I was going to tell this, but um, here it is. This is going to not paint me well, but that's okay. I was at Foot Action at the mall last week. I have a thing for shoes. I've said this before, right? Just get over it. It is what it is. Your pastor loves shoes. All right, not like high heels or anything or <laughs> pumps, I guess is what they call them. Let's not get weird here. It's a big fan, big fan of shoes. If I was a multimillionaire, you don't have to worry about me buying Lamborghinis. I'd probably just buy Nikes. So it's a foot action. They had these Jordans that I was really looking forward to that I couldn't find anywhere. And I walked in and I realized what happens. Here's what happens when you're, when you're preaching, whether you're a pastor or just teaching a group. The Lord will put stuff in your life to kind of wake you up and help you realize you're not better than anyone. So I had actually taken my shoe off and I was trying another one on and this group of minorities walked in. It was a bunch of guys, Mexican guys. And I had this moment in my heart and in my life where I actually turned to go grab my shoe to get it out of the way because something in me was fearful and I had no idea why. And I, uh, so my family's just learning this. They were actually at the mall. I actually had to disappear for a few minutes and go pray and repent because I didn't realize that I had done exactly what I was going to talk about here today. I, I didn't consider myself to have any prejudice or racism or anything like that, but it's amazing how it presents when you don't realize it. And for me, that was a moment where I failed. I had to repent. 
So read with me, Matthew 5, it'll be on the screen. It's going to be a familiar passage if you were raised in church, but don't worry, we're not doing a Sunday school Bible study with Miss Ethel. We're going to hang in and actually talk a little deeper about it. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. I've got the ESV version. If you uh, have other versions, that's fine, but this is what we call the elect standard version. It's what God loves best, so <clears throat> here we go. You are the son of, if you came here wondering who I was, if you're going to find out today, you are the salt of the earth. This is Jesus speaking. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Interesting parallel there to help people slip. Anyways, uh, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, these four verses are very popular in Christian culture. You've probably heard them multiple times. We've always been told, be a light, be salt, da 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 But I think what Jesus is actually speaking of here when he talks to these people is one word. It can be summed up in one thing, and that's influence. It's influence. Everyone sitting here in this room and everyone you will pass on the road and every single person that you meet with and talk to and order coffee from or approach in a restaurant, not approach, that sounds weird, but uh, meet in a restaurant, everyone has influence, no matter what you do. Someone you meet at the gas pump or someone who you go and have a formal meeting with, a president of a university maybe, all have influence. And what Jesus is speaking of here, he's using terms that are very familiar with the culture and the people that he's talking to because what Jesus does and why we're doing this today is he consistently speaks to the heart of the culture instead of just using big words to make him sound smart. I don't know what... Um, cultural Instagram was back then, but maybe it was like writing on papyrus and hanging it up on the wall or something. I don't know. But Jesus wasn't worried about that. So he speaks to the heart of the people. And what he's talking about here is he talks about influence. Now we have influence. Everyone does. And although we could spend all day through the whole verse, I've got a lot today. And so I want to just focus on salt, just salt today. Now, salt is interesting because actually in Roman culture, I don't know if you know this, gold star to you, it's really impressive because I had to learn this. Salt in Roman culture was actually the second most important thing they had. They thought that the sun was number one. Nothing came, under, uh, came beyond the sun. The sun was the best, most important thing, which I'd agree with that, except for I'm Irish and almost translucent white, so it hurts me every summer, but that's okay. I'll deal. And the second was salt. In fact, they would say nothing was more valuable than salt. That's an interesting concept for us, right? I mean, I've never considered salt being very valuable. Like everyone's seen the one old lady who takes all the sugars out at the restaurant and throws them in her purse. I've actually, when I worked in restaurants, seen people steal salt and pepper shakers, which was really interesting because I thought the hands that have been on that, you don't even know. They get wiped off like once a night, you know, unless you get ketchup on it or something. That's gross. We'll move past that. <laughs> but nothing was more valuable than salt. And Jesus actually lays out why that is in this passage. In fact, soldiers were sometimes paid in salt, which if you ever heard your grandmother say, they're not worth their salt. You guys heard that before? Someone's not worth their salt. That's where this comes from. It's true. It comes from Roman Jesus time periods where people would be paid in salt. And they said they're not even worth what they're getting paid for. Now, if you come throw salt on me, we're going to have an issue. But that's what they do. They would, they would actually see it that valuable because it did a few things for the Romans, right? The first thing it did is it preserved. It kept their food from spoiling, now we put that on steaks and go pay $100 for 80-day aged steaks who have been aged in salt. I've never done that before, but it sounds awesome. They purify. It would actually clean a wound. It's very useful. They give seasoning. They give life to something bland. It creates thirst. 
And the one really important thing that it did is it was actually a form of friendship and binding contracts. Isn't that crazy? So today, if you were to go buy a house, you'd sit with a lawyer who's ready for you to sign things as fast as possible and then give him the check. And you're a real estate agent who's happy and excited. And you sit with your wife or friend or whoever, and we sign things, and we make copies, and then we go, oh my gosh, I'm going to be paying for this for the next 30 years every month. What have I done? But in this time period, they would actually share salt. <clears throat> they would take salt, and they would trade it, and then they would eat it in front of each other. That's how they had contracts. You get married, share some salt. Wouldn't that be easy? Like, I like you. Here's some salt. I hope she gives me salt back. Right? Now, if that happened in today's culture, we'd see, like, real thirsty college students just throwing salt at every girl who comes by. <laughs> I, think, I think someone hit me with their salt. No, they were going for that guy. Nice guys never win. But that's what they do. They have bond contracts. Because here's what that would do. It would, to share salt indicated a mutual responsibility to look after each other's welfare over whatever contract you had made. Even, even if you shared salt with an enemy, it was binding. You were actually obliged to treat that enemy as a friend. It was, it was a demonstration that said, you and I are together in this fight. Here's something you're probably not going to hear at most churches, so here it goes. One of the most famous scenes in the show Game of Thrones. All right, let's not all, I know some of y'all watch it. Don't be like, hi, um, I, don't, I don't watch that show. That is very violent. I go to church. Okay, whatever. So some of y'all watch it. It's fine. But there's a, there's a scene called the Red Wedding where there's a huge traitorous act where one family murders another family. And everyone doesn't understand because they actually invited them into their home and shared salt. That's what they did. Bread and salt. And so when Jesus is talking about salt being salt, he's actually saying that like, you have a covenant with people that you share with to take care of them, to provide for their welfare, to be equally, mutually responsible. And here's a, here's a reason why that's a big problem for our world today. As much as we are called to be salt to the earth, my fear, and while we're talking about the things we're talking about in this taboo series, is that we have actually instead made Christianity unpalatable for many people. We've made it stifling, restrictive, and in appearance, judgmental even. As, as our culture has viewed God through itself, the church has allowed religiousness to evaluate culture and then apply that to the Bible. And what it's led to is it's led to this is who I am and what I believe and anyone who's different has no place. Anyone who looks different or sounds different has no place. In fact, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was an associate justice of the United States of America from 1903 to 1934, said this. So here's what I want to tell you, not a new problem. Is what he said. I may have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Ooh. This is not a new problem. When we, when we talk about this taboo idea, I recognize that we are trying to fix problems that have existed for thousands of years. That's how ridiculous of a person I am. I think we can. I think Jesus offers that. But it takes all of us. In fact, 4,000 churches open every year trying to fix this. But the problem is, because of this mentality and what people view and believe about churches, is 7,000 churches in America close every year. We literally are closing at almost a 200% rate. 100% rate. I don't do math well. So how do I believe this has presented itself in our culture? I think it comes from how we view others who don't look and sound like us. Specifically, 
in our country, race and prejudice. The church is so guilty of this. We separate ourselves. We hold ourselves back. We stay comfortable. And this is what I was talking about. Please don't shut down on me right now. We're going to push through. I want you to hear this, okay? Why does the church need to have a discussion on race? Why is this an important conversation for us, even as a one-year-old church, to have? Because, church, we are called to be an example, to be salt, to be different. We have covenanted with each other. We ask you to give. We ask you to serve. We preach. We worship together. We have community together. We have exchanged salt excuse me, we've exchanged salt. We have a mutual responsibility to look after each other and care for each other, and we can't do that if we are blind by the things we believe about people because of how they look or how we perceive them. Now, some things that I believe about you, okay, so it's not so like finger pointy here. Are y'all still with me? We awake and we do jumping jacks or anything? All right. I can get loud, just let me know. Here's some things I believe about you. Number one, you are most likely not racist, okay? Let me get that out of the way. I don't think we're all racist in here. If you are, there's a cross right back there. You'll be able to go to it later. Number two, I don't believe the majority of people are outright purposeful racists. Number three, prejudice is the real issue, but racism is applied prejudice. Number four, we as the church are called to be the solution to the problem. So today, as we talk about taboo, this is no day off. And I want to be clear, when we talk about racism, this is not like white people and black people, okay? Let's not say it's just white people versus black people. White people are the aggressor. This is racism. This is every demographic that exists. If we are a melting pot of a country, that means we have every country, Indian, Asian, Jamaican, whatever, throw it all in there. This is the problem of racism. It's not only a white-black thing. So here's some statistics for you. 83% of people believe racism is still a major issue in America. 83% of people So why are we not talking about it? 64% of people believe racism remains a major problem in the USA. 45% of Americans, this one blew my mind, 45, we're not quite there yet. Not quite there on the slide yet. 45% of Americans say race relations are getting worse. Think about that. 50 years ago, 40 years ago, Martin... Luther King Jr. was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was one of many. In the 90s, early 90s, Rodney King was famously beaten by police officers, which then sparked race riots. And and 45% say things are getting worse. Where is the church? 41% of Americans say too little attention is paid to racial issues. And 47% of Americans say they rarely or never have discussions about race. Because it is that uncomfortable. It is that taboo. It is that hard. So that's why we're doing it. I I know it's a big risk for us to do this, but that's why we're doing it. Because we got to start having this conversation and what, what it means to see it through the gospel. I got some quick graphics I want to show you, and we'll fly through these real quickly, but go ahead, throw that one graphic up. Actually, we'll just do this one. That's great. So this is the perception of how, this is a for instance, how blacks are treated in the U.S. And notice the discrepancy here. When you ask white people how black folks are treated, you get 50% say they're treated less fairly. Then you ask African Americans, and it's 84 Within the courts, you see 30%, 34%, 32%, 41% when applying for a loan or mortgage. 
two-thirds of African Americans feel like when they apply for a mortgage or a loan, like a car loan or whatever, that they are treated less fairly than their brothers. In the workplace, again, two-thirds of people. In stores or restaurants, 49%. Now, I, I don't even think that's a number that necessarily just reflects the African American population. That probably reflects a lot of races. I can't imagine half the stores and restaurants I go into wondering if I'm going to get fair service. And y'all, listen, I, I waited tables for a long time. I've watched that. Do you remember that? We would see people not take tables of people who had different skin tones because they were scared that they wouldn't get tipped correctly. Regularly. I mean every single shift. I don't mean once in a while. Multiple people. I mean like we would be the sixth and seventh person that would finally get asked. My younger brother is an incredible guy. And when he was 19, he waited on a table on Valentine's Day that nobody else would. It was a younger African-American couple. And he treated them the exact way he's been taught to treat them. Kindness and fairness. And he was waiting on a backup NFL running back who thanked him with a $250 tip because he didn't know if he'd be treated fairly. You know what happened then? After that, a lot of people said they would have taken the table if only they had, you know, time or whatever. When voting in elections, another 23% discrepancy. See, guys, listen, I'm not here to paint white guilt or anything like that. This is a picture of racism in America and in our culture. It exists. We can't say no anymore. We can't deny that it's here. Thank you. The true issue, the core of that isn't to make things more fair. The core of how we fix this is that we have to not forget who we're created by. We have to, we have to not relinquish the relationship of who God created us to be within a culture of each other. Galatians 3 is another very famous verse that we love to talk about, but it's hard to apply. And Paul says this in Galatians 3, verse 28, and I think it'll be on the screen. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. So the question I have is how do we allow ourselves to get to this place? How did the church allow ourselves to get to this place? And I'll give you two answers as I get ready to moderately close. <clears throat> I'm learning not to lie so much to you guys. <laughs> the two ways are this. Number one, we've forgotten the Imago Day, and we've learned to instead discredit and blame. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, one of the most famously quoted, I think I'd say this verse more than any at every wedding. As we talk about creation and man and woman. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Yeah, this is why I don't feel bad killing spiders. Um, and I want to be honest with you guys. I was going to go after a little bit of shock value and throw a spider up on the screen. But I did one Google image search, and I freaked out and got nervous and scared. And I said, I can't do that to people I love, which is me. But, um, yeah, couldn't do it. But killing spider, spiders is godly. It says right there. That's totally in context. Um, <clears throat> verse 27, we continue. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Real big on who created them there. See, this scripture has been historically abused as well to force authoritarian tyranny, which is not what you typically hear with that verse. In fact, kings... Monarchs would reference this scripture 
This is legit. Would reference this scripture as saying there were visible representations of God. Therefore, they ruled on behalf of him and could not be questioned. Y'all, this is a cultural systemic issue. We literally have people who say, I was created in the image of God. He pointed me here, Romans 13. He set me there. Therefore, I lead and you do not question me. That is the concept that people are dealing with every day. Unquestionable authority. Here we go. This is a part that might make some people really uneasy, but I'm going to say it. This is still a common theme today in Christendom. See, we read Romans 13 that talks about how God places people in authority in the government for a reason and his purpose. And we say, well, God put them there. So they're supposed to be there. So we don't question them. Without realizing there's also a biblical, historical, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a biblical, historical concept and context and precedent that shows that God actually placed men in authority over men, not just to bless them, but to judge them, to judge a nation. And, and we, we see things like our government that we put hope in, and because we apply scripture to culture instead of allowing us to see culture through the gospel, and we say things like, oh, well, you can't question authority because God put them there. But we don't realize God may have put them there for our judgment just as well as our blessing. Because our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in culture. Our hope is in the gospel. And the only way we get through this idea of prejudice and racism is that if we first see the gospel and then people instead of people and then add the gospel. So why does any of this matter for us as a church, as a small one-year-old church? Why does this matter? Why am I asking you to be the voice of reason in a fight that's lasted thousands of years? Because we are called to not be comfortable as believers. If you follow Jesus, you are not called to be comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about consistently releasing control and authority. There's nothing comfortable <clears throat> about working hard and then giving a portion of that to a church, to ministry. There's nothing comfortable about being someone who is bent and known by their heart and their repentance and their care and their sacrifice instead of selfishness. Because we've been told our whole lives we are to live as we want to live, take care of number one first without realizing number one is in us, it's them and him. So why would I ask you to take on this burden? Because if we are truly going to change a community and a people, we have to be the people who see people the way God created them to be, which is in his image, in his life, who are given his spirit to pursue him and enjoy him forever. One last scripture of the day I want to read to you because it's way too long. I don't know if we have it on the screen or not, but it's in Numbers 12, starting in verse 1. I want to read this story to you and let you digest it, and then I'll tell you why I think it's important. The characters you need to know are Miriam and Aaron and Moses. This is what it says. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Thanks. Very clear. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. <coughs> Excuse me. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. This is one of my favorite verses in Numbers because Moses wrote Numbers. He's like, now the man Moses was very humble. Right? That's what I'm going to write about me one day. Write an autobiography. Now, the man who wrote this book is very humble and incredibly attractive. Verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. Whoops. 
You ever had like your mom or dad or grandma or somebody come up and be like, hey, get out of your room right now. It's time. And then they use your middle name. You're like, oh, this is bad. That's what happens. The Lord calls them out and says, come to the tent of meeting. It's time. Have a come to Jesus moment. He ain't even come down as man yet. There it is. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron, or, or, sorry, Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Whoops. It's getting real. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. He actually calls him in that, in the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh, provider. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? So let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on their march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So here's what happens. Here's what you need to know. A Cushite was an Ethiopian woman, okay? Synonymous with having dark skin. Now, I want to paint a picture that's not there. Moses was also not white. All right, I know you've seen a lot of art depicting Moses and Jesus. They were not white. Let's get that out of the line right now, all right? If that breaks your systematic theology down, we got some big talking to do, and that's fine. I'm all about helping. But Aaron was the high priest. Miriam was a prophetess. These were people who were in high authority over the church. And they, speaking to themselves with the presence of God near because he hears everything, begin to discredit him. But they discredit Moses not by what he did, but by a descriptive yet personal part of his life. And they discredit his ability and his relationship with God. And in verse 2 they say, has God not spoken to us as well? Like, I know that God talks to Moses, but what about us? He's talked to us too. And then the Lord does some work. Because it says that their anger burned against Moses, not because of anything he had done, but because he married a woman who had a different complexion than he did. And they used that to discredit him as a person. Does that sound familiar? Anybody heard that? Seen that play out in your life? See, the Lord does some work on Miriam and on Aaron because when you hurt the wife, the husband hurts as well, right, married folks, and vice versa, because you're one. If you get joy out of seeing your spouse hurt, then we probably need to meet, figure that out. So the Lord does some work. And I love what he says. He's like, listen, I have prophets, right? He actually goes and talks about his relationship with Aaron first. He's like, listen, I've got prophets. I have people who represent me. I speak to them in visions and in dreams. And they go and they preach the word. But Moses, Moses is different. Moses is chosen. Moses hears from my mouth. We speak mouth to mouth. I don't do things in visions and in dreams that he has to interpret. I tell Moses what my will is. Moses carries it out. So so how dare you burn against someone who I've chosen? How dare you? And then as he removes himself in his anger, Miriam takes her hand out, and I love this, and it's white as snow. Like, oh, I I, I love that about God. He's like, oh, you got a problem with the race? Skin tone? 
Bam, you're white. How you like that? Right? See, they they sought to discredit Moses by his wife because his wife was black. And so God goes, oh, you probably Middle, Middle Eastern Egyptian olive complexion. Bam, have a white hand. A diseased white hand. Live with that. And God leaves. And here's where we get the, the application of us in our culture. There's two responses. I'll pick that up later. There's two responses. Aaron, who immediately repents, immediately apologizes. And the high priest, who's now broken his relationship, goes to Moses and says, please, please beg God to forgive her. Don't allow her to have this penalty of death, of being thrown out because that disease is contagious and now she's unclean. See, God makes her unclean for the sake of her saying someone else was. And Aaron says, please heal her. Please, Moses, pray to God. He hears your voice. Speak on my behalf and on hers. Do not let her be as someone who is dead and forgotten about. And then notice what Moses does. Moses has not become offended. Moses has not become angry. Moses speaks to God on behalf of the person who oppressed him. He prays for him. And Moses begs God for Miriam's restoration. He begs God to heal the one who cursed him. And then as God says that she has to go and pay her due penalty, has to remain accountable for her past, something crazy happens. They wait. God says she has a penalty, seven days. She has a week that she has to go think about what she's done. That's the least penalty she would get if her own father had spit on her face. She'd become unclean and have to take a week to go get ceremoniously clean. And so she has to go, and the the people, even the oppressed and aggressed, wait. And when she is healed, she comes back into community, and they go on with where God is taking them. So why does this matter? Because those are two attitudes that we need to have as the church. The ones who have blamed and forgotten the Imago Dei, which means image of God in Latin. I'm not that smart. Someone else came up with it. We must repent. We must seek God. We must apologize. This is not a social justice warrior conversation. That is ridiculous. Don't paint that. Do not apply the gospel to culture. I'm sorry, culture to the gospel. Apply the gospel to culture. This is not a social justice conversation. This is a sermon about the Imago Day and loving people because God created them and made them and made us and we are together and we have shared salt because we are fighting through this world together. So do not, do not tell me this is a social justice conversation. It's not. In fact, the problem is we've allowed people who don't know Jesus to speak things that sound like Jesus instead of being like Jesus. So don't do that. Because we have to be better. We have to be, if we've been aggressed, people who do not rise to anger, but instead rise to gentleness and humility and grace, who pray on the behalf of those who would aggress. And if you are an aggressor, you need to repent and apologize. Seek grace. The natural responses in these moments can be ugly. And maybe you're listening to this or you're sitting here and you might be feeling some of this. And I want to tell you that's natural and we're going to 
close with this, that you might be defensive. You might say, how dare you? Look at your church. You meet in a school, and you'll say this to me? Yep. I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not whatever. I only watch Fox News because CNN's the worst. I'm just kidding. It's a bad joke. (laughs) Maybe it's self-righteousness. I'm woke, man. I know. I can't deal with this. I'm better than that. I don't suffer with that. I don't deal with racism. I don't have that in my heart. I'm better than you. I'm out. Nope. Maybe it's helplessness. Sean, you even said... 20 minutes ago that this is a problem that's existed forever. Yep. There's nothing I can do about it. This problem is bigger than me. Nope. Because it's not bigger than the Holy Spirit that dwells within you that you've been promised and given. It's not bigger than the God who created the world, who literally out of dust formed man and breathed life into him. It's not bigger than the Jesus that we're going to celebrate who defeated death, who walked a life that no one wanted, who hung on a cross, who was buried in a borrowed tomb and resurrected. It's not bigger than he is. It's not bigger. It's not too big for you. But we have to be in this together. We have to. Maybe it's apathy. I don't deal with that. I've got a friend who's black, right? It does matter what you do. Don't rest on your laurels. Be part of something different. Point people toward the gospel instead of the justice system of why they should love each other. Or lastly, maybe it's uncertainty. You say, what what does this actually mean? Why does it matter? Church, here's why it matters. Here's why I'm begging you to take this and to share it and to put it out to people who need to hear it, not so we become famous or big, but so that people can understand they have a supernatural call. If you follow Jesus, we are called to be better, better than how culture has dictated we become. I'm tired of the news telling me how I should feel about black people or about white trash or about people who don't have what I have, or people who do, or people who have more, or people who have less, or people whose skin is lighter than mine or darker than mine. I'm tired of the media and the world and culture telling me how I should feel by how someone has their pants. Ridiculous. Make fun of my pants, I can handle it. I'm not going to be a person who lets culture dictate the gospel to me. Because I have a supernatural call. Notice in Genesis, God said, let us create them in our image. I got news for you. The us, God, it is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The them is us. We are them. The people we share our salt with. Different skin tones and ages and needs. We are them. God created us. We are not the judge. He is. Because you and I aren't the us, we are the them. And knowing that, we understand that there is no longer a Jew nor a Greek, free nor slave, male or female, for all are called. And our call is to fight with God for the oppressed. As Isaiah 10 says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil that they may make the fatherless their prey. No. You are called to be people who speak and live life who aren't afraid of a conversation that 48% of America has not yet had. And we point them toward the answer. It is not to feel bad. It is not to 
throw money at things. It is to remember that God created them. And we, all who have shared salt, are them. And so we must be people who call out racism and oppression and prejudice when we see it. And if we've done it, to apologize. And not as a sense of guilt, but as a sense of reconciliation and redemption and relationship. We must covenant with each other to be the salt of the earth truly, not just people who make lives better, but who change atmospheres. We must not grow weary fighting against our own sin. Church, if you will fight with me, we will change this city. I believe that. Because there are people who need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, you're good. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you created us. And that we find commonality and unity in that. That we find peace and hope. And Jesus, I pray that you would wreck our hearts for each other, for the people we don't know, but for the people that you are already beginning to call to this place because they need to hear that the Imago Day matters and this culture will not tell us who we are and what we are supposed to be, but instead help us to be people who find it in the gospel through your love and your story of redemption for all people for us because we love you and we thank you and it is in your holy name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.